Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Firstly, let me introduce you to my guest with whom we're going to be discussing anthroposophy. Dr. Torin Finzer has served Waldorf education for more than four decades, first as a class teacher and later as a faculty member and director of the Waldorf Teacher Education Program at Antioch University. A former general secretary of the Anthroposophical Society in America, he has also helped found the Center for Anthroposophy in New Hampshire. His research and writings have reached people all over the world, including several books that have been translated into multiple languages. Torn has served as a consultant, workshop leader, and keynote speaker at numerous conferences. He's married to Corinne, has six children, and is also now a very happy grandfather. Thank you, Torin Finzer, Dr. Torin Finzer, so much for joining me today on the Waldorfie podcast. It's so lovely to have you. I am so interested to speak to you about what is anthroposophy. I mean, I was a Waldorf student for eight years, my husband for 12 plus years, and we've had conversations together and with other alumni, and, and we even, you know, still are saying, oh, you know, what is anthroposophy? And there are definitely parents who are interested, who want to know this, the answer to this question, what is anthroposophy? So if you could, I guess, answer that in the simplest terms possible, we can start with that. What is anthroposophy? <laughs> I know it may be hard to make simple. Well, I have to begin with a thank you for your initiative and for taking up this question on behalf of parents. So often parents have an intuitive uh, connection to Waldorf education, and then they discover through their children the amazing things that happen in a Waldorf classroom. But the question of anthroposophy often remains in the background, and you're taking this head on and asking that question. So I'm going to begin with the simplest, because you asked for it, that the word anthroposophy has within it several components. There's the Sophia, which is wisdom, the goddess of wisdom. Anthro, which we find in many other words, has to do with the human being. And then the rest of it means the study of. So put very simply, anthroposophy is the study of the wisdom of the human being which includes, of course, the whole world, because this world of ours is filled with human beings of all different nationalities, cultures, races, languages, and the study of who we are as human beings. Where have we been? How do we work with one another? These are very modern questions for today. Yeah, I find that so interesting that you know, Steiner and his ideas, which are a hundred years old now, really still are so relevant now, actually. Um, so could you describe briefly the history of anthroposophy? I mean, I just mentioned Steiner, and I'm sure lots of parents or interested peoples listening mm -hmm. don't know who Rudolf Steiner is. So could you give us a, a, a background, maybe a quick background, just in who is Rudolf Steiner and maybe into the his finding anthroposophy? So anthroposophy is intimately connected with the person we call Rudolf Steiner. So you're correct in trying to address those two aspects together. 
and this may not be the right moment to give a, a biography of Rudolf Steiner. Right. <laughs> but uh, he was an unusual human being from an early age on. His connection to nature, the kinds of questions he asked as a child already, his feeling that the sensible world that we have around us, the things we can touch and feel, were only part of reality, that there was so much more than what meets the eye. And so he asked questions and he tried to discover more and he found that many people sort of dead-ended knowledge and were not willing to go further until he came across the subject in school called geometry. And he realized that in geometry, there was the possibility to go beyond the sense perceptible. That when you imagine or you hold a concept such as an equilateral triangle or a line that goes on and on towards infinity, that in geometry, there's a possibility to step beyond what is immediately apparent in the senses. So as a young person, he, he had these questions. And then as he grew older, he discovered the work of Goethe, the famous naturalist and writer, playwright. And he found in Goethe someone who had a holistic view of the world. And he loved Goethe's metamorphosis of the plant and Goethe's way of working with color and, and the complete picture of the human being that Goethe seemed to uh, exemplify. And then as things progressed, he found other people who were seekers of the spirit. And he fell in with some who were called theosophists. And he went to the meetings. Many of them were feminists, were uh, political leaders, were people who were out there in the world, but also met in study. And Rudolf Steiner worked with the theosophists for, for some years, around the turn of the century, just before uh, 1900 and a bit after. And at a certain point, he separated from them because they had certain views about reincarnation and Christology and other things that he felt were not correct. But he still, Rudolf Steiner still carried this thirst to, to explore further and, and create a, a vision, uh, a picture of the world that was really modern, that appealed to human beings today. And that came out of an understanding of who the human being is today. So he began to work with this notion of anthroposophy, as I just described it. And for many years, um, he was a thinker that uh, worked uh, with the conceptual life in anthroposophy and their books such as Philosophy of Freedom and Theosophy, uh, How to Know Knowledge of Higher Worlds. Uh, he was a writer, he was a lecturer. Then he had many years in which he worked with the arts and uh, he was personally also a sculptor, someone who loved to work with wood. Yeah, even statues that were, you know, 15, 20 feet high, he would be up there chiseling away. He loved to work uh, with the arts. His wife was a, a eurythmist, or he helped her found eurythmy. And then uh, he took on many other subjects later on in his life. Uh, and we can get to them as well. And that's where the the founding of the first Waldorf school comes in, as well as biodynamic agriculture and many, many other things. Well, that actually leads me into my next question. So with Steiner's, I never know what the right word to use to describe his observations is mm -hmm. actually. Um, well, firstly, I think it's an important distinction to make early on that anthroposophy is the study of the nature of the world. I read that somewhere. <laughs> and that that is not a religion. 
I mean, I'm going to go in depth in that aspect for parents in other content, but just to to bring that to the table that this study of the nature of the world encompassed everything and was not a religion or religious practices. I just want to make sure that we are correct on may, that. May point. I comment on that? Of course, yes. yeah. So, religion, as we know it today, uh, often has certain characteristics, and uh, they are very evident if you spend the time to study and to observe and to work with people in one religion or another. Karina and I were just in Amman, Jordan, and to experience Islam in a Muslim country is, is an amazing experience. Um, Christianity, uh, very strong influences in many parts of Europe and the United States. Uh, Judaism, uh, these spiritual endeavors that we call religion often have certain characteristics that there is often a, a doctrine, there are practices of faith. If you are Jewish, you have a different practice than if you're a Christian. Uh, often there are buildings identified with the religion, and often there's a sacred text. Anthroposophy does not have any of those attributes. Anthroposophy is a method of spiritual inquiry that can apply to people all over the world, regardless of their religious persuasion. So when we were in Amman, Jordan, uh, I gave a talk, uh, first Waldorf talk, I was told, in Amman, Jordan, translated into Arabic. And looking out over the audience, you know, all the women in their burqas and the men in different attire, uh, the questions they brought came very much out of their culture and their religion. But anthroposophy spoke to them because they, they, anthroposophy has an interest that transcends any particular religion. And then in Taiwan in February, a very different religious background. No Muslims, no burqas, a very different culture. I spoke about anthroposophy and Waldorf there. And then in the United States, one can go to the so-called Bible Belt, you know, in certain places of this country. And there are people there who uh, are also drawn to what is uh, possible through anthroposophy and through Waldorf education. So anthroposophy is meant to unite people from different uh, cultures and persuasions and so on and bring them together. And the best place to see that is in Waldorf schools. That We have a Waldorf school in Jerusalem where Israelis and Arabs are studying together. We have Waldorf schools in Africa. We have Waldorf schools in New Zealand and I got to experience the Maui teaching in that Waldorf school. We have Waldorf schools all over China now. So that is the proof, really. If Waldorf schools can exist in all these different cultures, there must be something there that's universal, as opposed to a religion which is often particular to a faith and a doctrine and a way of practice. Thank you so much for clarifying that for me. I know a lot of, I don't know, I guess parents somehow, I don't know how, misinterpret that quality about it. But that's why, you know, we're asking and inquiring now is to make sure that we're clear on that, that may, topic. May I contradict myself? I, my students really have a lot to tolerate when I do this. <laughs> but I've just made that case, as yes. you described. I would like to say something, though, that might seem to almost go against what I just said, but I have a reason for doing it. Okay. <laughs> 
anything we do in life can become fixed, habitual, and dogmatic. As a mother of a young child, you know that there are people who will give you advice and they will say, do this and don't do that. One can become dogmatic with parenting. One can become dogmatic with, you know, how one does exercise, mm -hmm. you know, which gym you go to and how you exercise and whatever. And there's also the possibility that if anthroposophy is not worked with as it was intended, that we could become dogmatic in anthroposophy. And then anthroposophy could start to look like a religion. Huh. So you see, I'm, I'm coming at it from the opposite point of view. Right. I've known dogmatic doctors. I've known dogmatic lawyers. Right. Dogmatism is a human trait. And so if you are a parent in a Waldorf school and you experience a Waldorf teacher or another parent who seems to be dogmatic, do this, don't do that. I urge those parents to inquire further. How much of it is the human being who has decided to be dogmatic? Because sometimes dogmatism is an easy way to live. And how much of it is really attributed to anthroposophy? And out of my many years of working with anthroposophy, I find nothing in anthroposophy that's dogmatic. It's the people who can make it so. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think from my background teaching yoga for many years, I know there are some yoga teachers who take that yoga dogma, I guess, to an extreme that makes it really, in my mind, ineffective when teaching because people can't connect or understand or apply because it's so um, dogmatic, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can understand that quality of it, I guess, uh, through that experience. So obviously a branch of anthroposophy is Waldorf education, but there are other branches. Mm -hmm. We talked about how uh, it encompasses everything in the world, anthroposophy. So what are the, before we get into anthroposophy's connection with Waldorf education and its influence, what are the other branches? Uh, do they have names, you know? Yes. So the best known are biodynamic farming, in addition to Waldorf. Biodynamic farming is very successful all around the world. Uh, it is interesting to observe that that branch or that outcome of anthroposophy is most strongly felt in some countries more than others. In India, they embraced biodynamic farming before they embraced Waldorf education. Taiwan, biodynamics is really big. So, uh, and of course, we have biodynamic farms in this country and in many others as well. So that is one area in which the holistic approach to understanding nature and life processes and so on can be brought into agriculture. Another one is the Camp Hill movement. Camp Hill uh, communities are dedicated to children and or adults with special needs. And the therapeutic aspect of anthroposophy is very, very helpful to really understand a child with Down syndrome, not just from the traditional point of view, but from the soul spiritual as well. And it's interesting that in Beaver Run, down in Pennsylvania, the local public schools have been spending eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year on children with special needs and have found that their programs are not very successful. So the public schools are sending their kids to the Camp Hill uh, special school 
uh, for for their education in huh. in Waldorf that has been adapted for special ed, and uh, so I saw you know when I was there a year ago the bus coming in with all of these district students, the public schools are sort of saying we can't do it and something is working when you do it. They don't understand anthroposophy, they don't understand the therapies, but they know when the children are learning and when they're happy. So Camp Hill is another. Then we have the arts. Uh, my wife is an art therapist and would be a great subject to interview because she's worked with children with all kinds of illnesses and uh, the art therapy really, really works. Um, Eurythmy is an art form that's unique to uh, our work out of anthroposophy. One could say it's a modified form of ballet, but it's much more. It's visible speech, visible uh, music. And then we have the medical realm. And the medical realm, I think, is just coming forward more in the last years. We have a medical association in the United States and one around the world. And That's an anthroposophical It's an anthroposophical association. association. And there are clinics in uh, different countries. There's one in Ann Arbor, but there are several really famous ones in Europe. And uh, you can go to some one of these clinics and uh, receive cancer treatment. The success rate of using mistletoe and iscador for cancer treatment, remedies that were indicated by Rudolf Steiner, is very, very high. Uh, someone told me recently that half of all the doctors in Germany who treat cancer now use iscador as part of their treatment plan. Because this is an anthroposophical is, treatment. It's an anthroposophical treatment using the, the substance that comes from mistletoe, which grows on certain trees, uh, to uh, create uh, um, a counterforce to the cancer, which can, as we know, so easily take over and, and harm the entire human organism. So the medical is another than the Waldorf. Those are perhaps enough. Uh, uh, maybe the last one I'll just mention is social finance. Uh, my father and, and brother helped found something called RF Social Finance, would be another great interview for you to do because social finance is how do we work with money in a way that shows we're, we're different, that, that we can, we can uh, demonstrate our values instead of uh, how much money do I earn, what can I buy, and, and uh, how can I get ahead uh, using money. Uh, social finance is geared around the question, what is the nature of money and how could money help people? It's all very interesting. So I'm, I guess to make a, a, pic, a big picture here, to start with a picture for people to begin to understand what we've been discussing, it sounds like all of these things are really holistic views of different aspects within the world that we live. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. And I think the word holistic comes up a lot when we're talking about Waldorf education, which is, of course, what I'm more familiar with than the other branches. So let's talk about anthroposophy and its association with Waldorf schools. I think from my experience, and I mentioned this earlier, it's interesting that as students, we go through and we come out at 12 years of being through the schools and we're, you know, living out in the world and and then come back later and say, oh, well, what is anthroposophy? Very different than if you go to Catholic school and you graduate after 12 years, you know what Catholicism is. So could you speak to that? What is the association or the influence of anthroposophy on the Waldorf school? 
it's actually a credit to the Pine Hill School and your teachers that you were not taught anthroposophy. Because again, it's not a religion, it's not a doctrine. Anthroposophy instead is a path of inquiry. It's a way for teachers to become better teachers, to understand the children they're working with. So I'll give you a few examples. How you view a child makes ever so much of a difference in terms of how you teach the child. If you see the child as an oversized brain and that you want to simply teach to, to the intelligence and then measure the intelligence afterwards, as we do in so many standardized tests in our public schools, then um, that child will try out of the goodness of her, his nature, to try and measure up to that attitude that the teacher has. The teacher sees me for my intelligence only. In Wolof schools, we try to look holistically, as you just described, and that means the child is, of course, a physical entity and has needs to move and to be active. You know very well the circus arts and other things that are so important. Uh, spatial dynamics, you're with me. The child is also an emotional being, has a soul. And that part of the child also needs to be nourished and supported. And then the child has a spirit nature, which is unique. And no standardized test, no teacher can ever fully understand the spirit origins of the child. And so I often say it in the Antioch teacher education program, it's good if the teacher stands before the children and has a feeling of reverence. Who are you? Who will you become? You may become ever so much greater than I am. The child struggling here in the front row may be the next Einstein or the next Mother Teresa. I do not know who you are. Your spirit is a mystery to me. So in a world of school, we try to see the child as an entire being of physical, soul, spirit, nature. And therefore, the subject matter that is brought is intended to appeal to all aspects. We have the morning circle and we have the activities. We have the story. We have the painting. We have other things that really speak to the feeling life, the soul life. And we have the thought content, and we have the review, and we have the progression through the grades in which the children become ever more active in their thinking. We wish to appeal to that as well. And this was really unusual back in 1919 when schools were started. But now many, many people have caught on to it. And there's a book that came out, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago called Emotional Intelligence, in which the author describes the importance of educating children emotionally so they can mature in, in their feeling life and, and learn uh, social intelligence. So, uh, and Jane Healy and many, many others have confirmed in brain research some of the things that Waldorf has long talked about in terms of child development. So, yes, you're right, Ashley. It's all about the holistic approach, seeing the entire child not just as a physical or a mental uh, entity, but really as a multifaceted being of whom we can have the utmost respect. So it's that anthroposophical, holistic viewpoint of the world that's influencing Waldorf education. There's no motive outside of that. There's no, 
you know, nothing that's being preached or something or taught within the schools. I think that's just so important to clarify for parents. I know that I have spent energy as an alumni saying, you know, oh no, that's not how it is at all. You know, there's just to clear up that confusion. I had such a wonderful experience in my Waldorf school as a kid and experiencing so much of what you just described where, you know, the teacher really saw me for who I was. And that's just such a gift for a child to be able to be educated that way. And and that's important. Uh, you as an alum are the best voice for Waldorf education. If people were concerned that it was dogmatic or racist or denominational religious or, or one thing or another, um, just talk to our alums. And they say universally that, first of all, they never heard much about anthroposophy. And secondly, that they were seen as human beings and their teachers had tremendous confidence in them and that they came away with a real courage to tackle almost any issue in life. Right. And I would say a a courage and a self-confidence to be able to take on those things. Yes. So coming back to anthroposophy, I know that the limited amount that I do know, you as an anthroposophist do inner work. What is that? What does that mean? Uh, and what does even anthroposophist mean? Well, who, who would you define as an anthroposophist? I mean, I'm interested in sending my son to a Waldorf school. He's one. And I w- don't know that I would call myself an anthroposophist. So who is an anthroposophist and what is the inner work that an anthroposophist would do? Mm-hmm. So again, to be difficult, I'm going to first take uh, issue with the word anthroposophist. Okay. Because that puts it into the noun realm as the word communist or socialist or capitalist. And and our world has too many of those things, defining people by these outer criteria, by the noun quality of being a thing. And Martin Buber, who is one of my favorites, uh, not an anthroposophist, not a Waldorf person, but a great, great thinker uh, coming out of the Judaic traditions. He speaks about the difference between an I-it relationship and an I-thou. And I-it is what I was just talking about, where things are seen as as uh, nouns, as um, you know, furniture, uh, as, as objects. And I-thou, which is relational, which is living, which breathes. And so rather than having anthroposophist, which is that I-it or the, the objective, you know, static, I prefer to use the phrase student of anthroposophy, or as my friend Douglas Gerwin likes to say, anthroposopher, because at least that implies activity. <laughs> so I don't consider myself an anthroposophist. I'm a student of anthroposophy. So now having taken issue with that word, I've totally forgotten your question. (laughs) So I wanted to um, go into the inner work aspect. So as an anthropologist. Student of anthroposophy. Student of anthroposophy. Thank you. Um, What is the inner work that one would do? And so I guess you could begin with that. And then maybe we could begin to explore if one was interested in pursuing this, pursuing anthroposophy studying themselves or just as an interested parent and wanted to start to dive down into what that means, let's go down that path. So let's start, as I mentioned, with what what that inner work is. What does that mean? Yes. So in one of his classic uh, texts early in his life, Rudolf Steiner described how every human being has within themselves 
soul qualities, uh, the slumbering faculties that are waiting to be awakened. Just as here in New Hampshire, we see around us nature awakening at this time of year with the daffodils and all the wonderful blossoming and, and growing. In the human being, there are faculties that wish to grow, to open. And some take it up in one way and some take it up in another. Uh, I have great respect for people who found multiple ways to awaken within. Practice of yoga is one way to do that. I think some naturalists, environmentalists, are on a spiritual path, even if they wouldn't name it, because of their way of, of working with nature. And in anthroposophy, uh, we're given a very conscious path of schooling, in which one can take up in freedom, if one chooses to, exercises to develop inwardly. So one set of exercises, often referred to as the basic exercises, have to do with very fundamental uh, qualities that can help one as an individual and help the environment, the world around us. They are things such as positivity. To work with the quality of positivity, say for a week, and every time that there's a negative thought or there's something that's said in a scornful, cynical way around one, to try and, and turn that into something positive. Another one is equanimity. How can one develop equanimity so that one is not just at the mercy of the ups and downs of everyday life? And again, as a parent, we know, you know, when the children are doing well, we're doing well. And when they have a bad day, we have a bad day. I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> so how can one ride that in which one is not completely at the mercy of the ups and downs, but can carry a certain equanimity? Another one is the control of thought. That was actually an exercise that one of the founders of the first Waldorf school, Emil Malt, really grabbed hold of because he saw the, the advantage of a businessman using control of thought to be more efficient and able to do more in a short amount of time by focusing. And there's a lot in, in a variety of spiritual traditions in the last years, particularly around attentiveness and intention. How can we focus? So these are some exercises I didn't mention, control of will. These are some very practical exercises that one can work on. And then one can go from there into working with verses, with meditations, with guided imagery, and then even in an, an advanced level, something coming from the School of Spiritual Science, which has very specific mantra that are available to those who really want to go much further. So anthroposophy allows for a path of schooling, but it's always up to the individual. It's not required of a teacher. In the Antioch Waldorf Teacher Training Program, we ask that the students who are preparing to be teachers engage in anthroposophical inquiry. They're exposed to a lot of things, and almost all of them end up working with anthroposophy as Waldorf teachers. But it's never an outer requirement for employment or for any degree, because it's really, really important that freedom always be respected. Well, thank you so much for this introduction to Anthroposophy, Torin. It's been a wonderful adventure with you today. Thank you, Ashley. This has been really fun. Thank you. So I know you have some resources that you want to share uh, about Anthroposophy and how people can explore this further. Do you want to share those with us? 
Sure, just a few. Uh, one main topic of this conversation is to do with parents. And I got that question so many times, and my graduates from the Antioch Waldorf program again and again said nothing could really prepare us for the parent work in the schools, and parents wanted more. So I took some time and wrote a book called The Second Classroom, uh, The Parent-Teacher Relationship in a Waldorf School. And uh, so that may be a, a place for some of the listeners of these interviews uh, to turn. Uh, it takes things from the parent side and from the teacher side and uh, then the relational issues that arise. So that's one. The other main topic of our conversation had to do with uh, anthroposophy. And uh, thanks to some of my colleagues, including Arthur Auer, Hugh Rennick, and Karina, and others who you may know, um, I did some editing of some of the so-called basic books of anthroposophy and uh, came up with a guided self-study. So it's basic anthroposophy for parents and those who might want it. Oh, that sounds perfect. Yeah. Then there are many other things. There's uh, a magazine called uh, Being Human, uh, put out by the Anthroposophical Society. There's a research bulletin that just came out, also featuring an article by Arthur Auer, uh, some favorite names in, in my life right now. And then we have um, two weeks of renewal courses right here in Wilton, featuring courses in anthroposophy, the arts, grade-specific, work. And these are amazing five-day retreats on a beautiful campus called High Mowing uh, with delicious food and nature walks and cultural life in the evenings. So uh, folks should really look up renewal courses through the centerforanthroposophy.org. And that's a resource for parents as well as teachers. Oh, that's good to know. I thought that was just a teacher thing. No, it's meant for parents as well. And oh. many parents do take these courses. Oh, fantastic. I think I may take a course if I can Good. sign up this summer. Yes. We'll see. So uh, there's just one other thing that I hadn't mentioned. Is there any research or studies that have been done related to anthroposophy that you thought are noteworthy or worth sharing? Oh, there's so much. Uh, I think I would turn, if one were a casual, you know, first-time reader, to some of the magazines that I just mentioned. Renewal Magazine, um, Being Human, and the Research Bulletin. Those are short articles. And uh, then all of my books are really based on research out of anthroposophy. Great. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can always send me a message at info.wallerfee at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show notes page for this episode. You can find lots more information at waldorfy.com, and I hope you'll connect with me on social media at bwaldorfy. I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>